Our subject tonight, the mystery of death. As you know, here in Australia, there are some, maybe many Australian Aboriginals who believe that when a person dies, that person goes on into another realm and then acts as a spirit guide to the living. After you die, still involved in the lives of the living. That's according to Australian Aboriginals. New Zealand Maori mythology teaches that when a person dies, that person's spirit travels to the northernmost part of New Zealand, a place called Cape Reina, and from there the spirit leaves the country and then travels back to the ancestral homeland. That's the teaching, the, 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 the traditional teaching about death in New Zealand. Hindus believe that you can live again and again and again. That's reincarnation. You live and then you come back sometimes in a lower life form, but not always. And then you continue to live and, you, and die and live and die and you repeat that cycle until eventually you achieve what they refer to as moksha, which is essentially everlasting life. The pyramids in Egypt demonstrate that clearly the Egyptians were very, very big on the afterlife when they found King Tutankhamun's tomb. They found it was replete with all manner of things, not only uh, sarcophaguses, but uh, vases and flowers and there was food and all kinds of things that they figured King Tut was going to need in the afterlife. That's what they thought. Greek mythology also big on the afterlife. Greek mythology had souls being ferried across the river Styx to Hades. It's not something we're always comfortable talking about. That's the thing, uh, the subject of death, but it's like taxes. It's absolutely surely going to get you, if not sooner, then later. 55 million people die a year. That's a lot. I kind of feel like that figure may be off, but that's the figure I got. Today, something that's becoming big in some parts of the world is something called death cleansing, where people realize, you know, I'm going to die and I've still got a house full of stuff. I might as well give it away or sell it or get rid of it now so that when I die, I don't have a house full of stuff just sitting here. And it's kind of sensible, as a matter of fact. These are people who are just happening in Scandinavia, kind of sensible people, I guess, there. Uh, they're getting ready for death. They're preparing by getting rid of some of their possessions. And I don't mean everybody, but this as a phenomenon is catching on. Uh, it's wise to think about death and plan for death. It's wise to make a will. If you don't have a will, get a will. Because if you don't decide what's going to happen to your stuff when you die, the government will decide. And more often than not, they will decide in a way that would not meet with your first choice. So it's smart, it's wise to think about these things. We think about death as evidenced by buildings such as the Taj Mahal. It's a mausoleum built in the 17th century by Shah Jahan in honor of his favorite wife. You've got to love that phrase, in honor of his favorite wife. Death is difficult. It is. The Bible calls death an enemy. Thankfully, it's the last enemy that will be destroyed. So it will be destroyed. And that is good news. Could you say amen? It's really good news. The Bible says that God will wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be, say it with me, there shall be no more death. Neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any pain, because the former things are passed away. And thank God for that. Death will happen, but God will get rid of death, and one day there will be a resurrection. It says so in numerous places, but we'll read this place. It's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where the Bible says that the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will tell me, 
rise first, and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord, and that's good news. Jesus, in a particularly nice funeral story, interrupted a funeral one day. In a particularly nice Bible story, interrupted a funeral one day. A widow from the town of Nain was escorting a funeral procession. Her son had died. The widow's son had died. That means she was left with nothing and very little in the way of prospects. But Jesus stopped the funeral procession and raised the boy from the dead. He raised the daughter of Jairus in the Bible. He raised Lazarus from the dead, even though Lazarus had been dead for four days. What a wonderful thing to know that death doesn't have to be the end. Death isn't the end. Families one day are going to be reunited. You'll see your loved ones again. You'll see those people that you miss, your parents, your grandparents, maybe God forbid your children. Thank the Lord. There's going to be a reunion one day. This is some of the best news that you are ever going to hear. There will be a reunion because Jesus is going to abolish death one day. There will be no more death. There's a reason the Bible refers to the second coming of Jesus as the blessed hope. Because when Jesus comes back, death is gone. The separation caused by death will be gone forever. No more goodbyes. No more goodbyes. When I go home to my hometown, one of the first places I go to is the cemetery. I don't go there to talk to my dad. I just go there to pay my respects. You know, I was there and, and I, I met a guy and he was mowing the, the, mowing the grass on the little lawn tractor. And I was looking around, looking for my... She's not my grandmother, but my mother's adopted, my father's adopted mother's uh, grave. I guess she's my grandmother, kind of. And so I was looking around. I couldn't remember where it was. And he stopped. And he said, you know, who are you looking for? Maybe I can help you. I kind of know where everybody is. Had a little chat with him, George Sonnex. What a good man. I said, George. And, and it meant a lot to me. I said, thank you for taking care of the cemetery. It honors our dead. We come here to remember. I looked around. You know, I used to mow that lady's grass and that lady's grass. <laughs> And that lady's grass. If I mowed your grass, it was probably bad luck because you were going to end up kind of here. And I went to school with that kid and I played cricket with this girl's husband and, and, and this lady's son and I used to play football. All the memories are there, you know. He said, I'm happy to do it, John. It's a labor of love. He said, I look at this place like it's holy ground. And then I noticed that about three meters away where he was sitting, his own wife is buried. I love to go to the cemetery and remember. I go by Mr. McRoberts, Mr. McRoberts' grave. Mr. McRoberts was our rugby league coach when we were between about 11 and 13. What a great man. What a fantastic man. And I go by his grave and I just think, yeah, he was a good man. We loved him and we knew that he loved us. And so we remember and we should. We should remember. It's right to do that. Death is an enemy. It takes so much away from us. But when you think about this, you realize that we're pretty good at knowing what we know, but we're not that good at knowing what we don't know. For example, we know that we live and we know that we die. We're certain about that. But what then? You get 10 different people and ask them, you might get 11 different answers. What happens next? Different religious faiths believe things that diverge widely from members of other religious faiths. It really does make you wonder. 
So what happens in the space between death and resurrection? Well, some people believe that you go straight to hell. And so there really isn't much of a space. Some people believe that you go to purgatory. And I was taught as a little child that babies went to limbo, although that church doesn't really talk, teach that much anymore. Some say that we become angels. Some say that we become ghosts. That's why people believe in haunted houses. Haunted houses. I met a lady one day who said that Uncle Larry used to, she said, just down there, I was in her house, just down there, that room on the right hand side. Uncle Larry was there for uh, six months before he died. And then after his funeral, she said, I went into the room to get something and music started playing. She said, I looked around. Then I walked out of the room and the music stopped. She said, I went back in and it started. I went back out and it stopped. She said, I figured that was just Uncle Larry letting me know that everything's okay. Well, I want to tell you tonight that was not Uncle Larry. It was definitely not Uncle Larry. Recently, the noted theoretical physicist Stephen Hawking died in Cambridge, England. He was a famous scientist, brilliant individual, I guess. And I'm going to say I guess quite deliberately, brilliant individual, I guess. He was a well-known atheist, quoted as saying that a belief in the afterlife is a fairy story for people who are afraid of the dark. Stephen Hawking said, there is probably no heaven and no afterlife either, he said, I'm an atheist. And that's why I say he's probably brilliant. Because he's pretty smart when it came to things of science, but not meaning any disrespect, that's not a very smart thing to say. And so my question tonight is, where's Stephen Hawking? He believes there's no heaven and no afterlife, so where is he? And now let's bring this closer to home, because last night or yesterday, former Prime Minister, the much-loved Larrikin, I've heard him referred to, that's not my word, that's his, his daughter even said that, I heard her on the radio today, he was a larrikin, my dad. Much loved former Prime Minister Bob Hawke passed away yesterday, aged 89. Now my guess is if you're part of the labor movement, you'd like him to be referred to as Sir Robert Hawke or St. Bob. If you're a liberal voter, you might look at it a little bit differently. Thankfully, Australians are singing Kumbaya about this right now and are being very respectful. The question is, where's Bob? Where's Bob Hawke? You're going to find out tonight. Now, I can't tell you what address they took him to. But in general terms, I'm going to tell you exactly where Bob Hawke is. And you're not, you'll find I'm not being critical and I'm not being a smart aleck. But I will be able to look at the Bible so that when you leave here tonight, you will be able to say, I know where Bob Hawke is. We're going to let Jesus tell us. No, Jesus didn't speak about Bob Hawke, at least not by name in the Bible, but he spoke about him in broad strokes. When he spoke about this subject, and he did so at length, there is a story in the Bible about Jesus and a man named Lazarus. John 11 verse 1 starts by saying, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. They sent a message to Jesus saying, Lord, behold, the one that you love is sick. They sent a message to Jesus. When Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, he did a curious thing. Instead of going to Bethany, a little town very near Jerusalem, instead of going there right away, he didn't, he did nothing. And he waited, and the disciples wondered, what in the world is Jesus waiting for? Well, he was waiting for this. These things he said, and after that, he said to them, our friend Lazarus does what? Sleeps. But I go that I may awaken him out of sleep. And so the disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. But Jesus was speaking of his death. But they thought that he was, taking, he was speaking of taking rest in sleep. 
Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is what? Dead. So he said, Lazarus is dead. And he said, our friend Lazarus does what? Sleeps. Lazarus is asleep. Lazarus is dead. Jesus equated death with sleep, and he did it very, very deliberately. Now, death has been a hot topic for thousands of years. Since the very creation of the world, this has been a hot topic. Human beings were never created to die. There are some things you were not created to experience. That's why grief hurts you so much. You weren't made to experience that. It's still foreign. You weren't created to experience jealousy or envy or anger. We weren't made that way. That's why those emotions don't feel good and they really badly reflect on us. Anger, as a matter of fact, is profoundly bad for your health. So death snuck into the world. It's an intruder. It's a hijacker, as a matter of fact. We were created to live. But death came into the world because sin came into the world. And there were terrible consequences as a result. Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 16. God said to Adam and Eve, at creation of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. But the devil got to work right away misrepresenting what God said. Do you misunderstand what God said there? It's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Eat the fruit on that day. You will die. And the devil came along and said, ah, hold on a minute. And that's what he does. You know, friends, there are some things in the Bible that are super clear, very plain. And yet we get confused by it. And the reason is because the devil comes and says, ah, did God really say? And it's really not because the devil says that that problem start. It's because we get into a debate with the devil instead of saying, hey, how about you get lost? God said what he said, and I believe it. Eve should have said that to the devil, but she did not. The serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And so the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. See that? He lied. It was an outright lie. God had spoken. You die if you do that. And the devil came along and said, oh, no, that's not going to happen. And so really the bottom line is we just want to decide who we want to believe, God or the devil. We know that Eve did eat the fruit and that death did come as a result. Now, what did death do? Well, Maybe I should ask the question, what did sin do? Cain, their son, killed Abel, their other son. These people were created perfect, Adam and Eve were. But sin did such a terrible work that one son killed another, and of course that was, that was death, and that was disastrous, disastrous. It wasn't long, and sin brought death in the most vulgar and frightful of ways. So let's go to the Bible and find out what the Bible says about this. Back to the story of Lazarus. By the time Jesus got to the town of Bethany, Lazarus was dead. He'd been dead for four whole days. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And notice what she says. But even, though, but even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give it to you. And Jesus said to her, your brother 
Tell me. Okay, at the risk of sounding like I'm belaboring the point, I want you to read that with me again. Your brother will. Okay, it's really, really important because tonight we want to find out where Bob Hawke is. And if we misread these verses, we'll end up with as little idea about it as when we arrived. Your brother will rise again. So Martha knew that Lazarus, her brother, was dead and she knew that he will rise again. She said to Jesus, I know that he will do what? Rise again in the what? Resurrection, which will take place at the what? At the last day. That's really clear. She knew he was dead and she knew he would rise. But in between time, what happens in between time? We know that people die. We've been to far too many funerals. And we've read the book, uh, the, the book of Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, which talks about the dead in Christ rising first. There's going to be a wonderful resurrection. But what happens in between? Now, when I was a child going to church, I was told that when a person died, they went straight to heaven or straight to hell or straight to purgatory. Of course, their body would stay in the grave, but I was told that their soul would go on to another place. And you might have been told the same thing if you weren't told that you heard it. And we read about it, and it's in TV and movies and websites. It's part of popular culture. I was told that a person's body goes to the grave, but that person's soul goes on to another place. Let's find out if the Bible says that. Genesis 2 verse 7, the Bible says, The Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils, the, tell me, the breath of life, and man became a living soul. That's important. Look at this. It's just like a, a maths equation. Dust of the ground plus the breath of life equals a what? All right, so you start with the dust. God got down in the dirt and he made Adam and then he breathed into his nostrils. Breath of life. He booted him up like you start up a computer, I guess. And he was now a what? He was a living soul. We can't say that enough. It's really important. Based on what the Bible writer said, we discover that a soul is not something that you have. It's something that you are. Now, if you've not heard that before, if you, like me, were told from this high, well, you have a soul, and when you die, your soul goes somewhere, it's really difficult sometimes to get your head around this. So accept it at face value, because at face value, it really works well. You don't have a soul. You are a soul. A soul is not what you have. A soul is what you are. Adam was made a living soul. It's a lot like saying, Auntie Charlotte is a dear old soul. You mean a dear old person. You're not calling her a ghost or anything, not a disembodied spirit. Adam was a soul. The Bible says that there was a time when 3,000 souls were baptized in one day. What do you think those were? Those were 3,000 people. That's right in the book of Acts. 276 souls were in the boat. Those weren't ghosts. Those were people in which or in whom were the breath of life. Look at Psalm 146 in verse 4 with me. It says, speaking of a human being, his breath or her breath goeth forth. He returns, she returns to his earth. In that very day, his thoughts do what? Perish. So a person lives, they die, they stop thinking. And their breath goes forth. Now, what is that breath? 
It is not something living or conscious. It's not something capable of thinking. We just read that at creation, human beings were not given a soul. They were made to be living souls. Don't be surprised. So if we don't have a soul, maybe we could say that we have a spirit. Well, the wise man said this, then the dust will return to the, gr- to the ground as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. Ah, John, there it is. That makes sense now. It's a spirit that we have, except Job equated the two. All the while, my breath is in me, and the spirit of God is in my nostrils. So it doesn't matter how you cut it, doesn't matter what the Bible calls it, we don't have a soul, we are body and breath. Okay, when the Bible was written, it was written by some really learned people. Luke was a doctor. Moses was raised in Egypt, went to the best schools. One would think he was raised as Pharaoh's daughter. Amos was a farmer. Uh, John was a fisherman. Do you think they wrote the Bible endeavoring to outsmart us and show us how clever they are? Academics can be like that. Uh, Not you if you're an academic. Other academics can be like that try to impress you do you think when they wrote the bible they said yeah this will really confuse them let's really mess them up or do you think they wrote the bible saying i just need to make this as plain as possible i think that i think they wrote the bible and they said let's make this plain now you have a person me for example and you would say well i see his body physically and i heard him breathe And so there's evidence, I think, that he is breathing and has breath. But we've got this idea given to us by church folks that we have a soul. Ever seen one? No. Did anybody ever catch one in a bottle? No. Did the surgeon ever say, oh my goodness, I nicked the soul quickly, clamps? No. No, never. What's this soul business? It's... It's mythology, essentially, is what it is. The Greeks gave it to us. This idea that you have some separate entity in you that flutters off when you die, it's just not in the Bible. All the while my breath is in me and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils. Body, breath. (sighs) Here it is. That's simple. We can understand that. And the interesting thing about it is it works with science. The interesting thing about it is a child can understand it. A child. The interesting thing about it is it works with common sense. And the interesting thing about it is that the Bible writer, when they wrote, they weren't saying, let me really make this difficult. This sounds a lot like a Bible writer just making it plain. So the idea that you have a soul that somehow leaves your body or somehow floats around, that was not an idea placed into the word of God by God. That was what human beings did to come along and mess things up. It's what the devil did. He doesn't want the Bible to be clear to you. He wants to muck you up. So God says, body and breath. Body and, if you want to call it spirit, that's okay. That breath is what keeps you alive. When you stop breathing, you stop living. Your brain may go on for another two, three, three and a half, four minutes, but you stop breathing and you're dead. That breath is your life spark. It's the power of God that keeps you up and running. When a person, I'll tell you what happened when my dad died. When my dad died, in fact, I was there. My father died in my arms. And when he died, he did this. Now, I had heard my father do that. Uh, 
thousands of times. But every time he did this, I always heard him do this. This time, there was the exhale and no inhale. He died. Where did his breath go? Well, honestly, just into the room. That's where it went. Symbolically speaking, biblically speaking, that breath, that life spark, when he stopped breathing, he stopped living, it went back to God. What that means is God has the power resident within himself to cause my dad to live again, to breathe again. Is that true? Sure. God has the power to boot up our loved ones who have passed away, to cause the dead to live again. So the breath goes back to God. It simply means that God has the power to make a dead person live again. Now, when I was a kid, as I mentioned to you, I was told that we had an immortal soul, an immortal soul. When you died, your soul just went on living. It couldn't die. Whatever this soul was, this entity that inhabits you somehow, this thing that the Bible says nothing about, it goes on living somehow. Now, I'm going to pause here because I just imagine there are one or two people, not, not too many, but one or two people who are challenged by this. Now, the Bible is really clear. I want to encourage you, and, and you're going to find out before this is over, that this has an immense amount of s- spiritual significance. You know, some people say, what difference does it make what I believe? It matters a lot. You want to honor God by believing what the Bible says. What difference does it make? Well, when you were in mathematics class and you were five years old and they taught you that two plus two equals four, you didn't say, ah, what difference does it make? Two and two is five. That's good enough for me. No, you said, I want to be right because it will have implications later on in life. And so you want to be right about this because it will have implications for you later on in life and it will implicate your eternal life. So, eternal soul. I thought about this when I got older. I thought, if human beings have an eternal soul, if, then the Bible is going to say so. And so I started hunting through the Bible and I found some really interesting things. Timothy wrote, about he who is the blessed and only potentate, the king of kings and lord of lords, who, can you read that for me, please? Who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, to whom be honor and everlasting power, amen. Who only has immortality? God. Is it possible, therefore, that you could have an immortal soul? It's not possible. Based on The very plan, I'm not going into Zechariah and finding some obscure looking symbolic prophecy and stretching and twisting it. This is plain. God alone has immortality. 1 Timothy 1.17, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. Only God is immortal. We cannot have an immortal soul because only God is immortal. In fact, Paul wrote about those who by patient continuance in well-doing seek for glory and honor and what? If you had it, you wouldn't be seeking for it. You'd just be chilling saying, I have immortality. But Paul says, no, we seek for it. In fact, Ezekiel wrote that the soul who sins shall die, not go on living forever. And in fact, he was so emphatic about this, he repeated the very same verse, uh, the very same thought 15 or 16 verses later. If people die and go straight to heaven, what could Jesus possibly have been saying to Martha? Notice what he said. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Oh, that's powerful. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. 
Now you're going to think this through and we're going to come back to this verse, this thought again and again and again. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Now writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 17, Paul said, if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. You are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If Jesus wasn't the resurrection and the life, if he wasn't raised, then people who die, again he refers to it as sleep, have absolutely no hope. He went on and he said in verse 42, same chapter, so also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in incorruption. It is raised in corruption. I'm so sorry. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. He says no resurrection, no hope. Everything hinges on this idea of a resurrection. We have a natural body, but when we are raised, there is a spiritual body. And as the story of Lazarus shows, the sleep between, uh, sorry, as the story of Lazarus demonstrates, the dead sleep between the moment of death and the resurrection. How then did we get to this place where everybody seems to believe that when a person dies, they go right on living? It's because of what the devil said in the Garden of Eden. You will not surely die. That's where it went. You will not surely die. Think about this. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. If you die and go straight to heaven, why in the world would there be a resurrection? Oh, because we have to come back to the earth and get our bodies. Come on. Come on, man. The Bible needs to be making sense. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. You know what that means? That means that when you die, if you die without Jesus, that's it. There's no hope for you. But if you die in faith in Jesus, yeah, you can live again. You'll come, you'll come up in the resurrection, in the right resurrection, because your hope is in Jesus, and Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Do you see how believing that a soul goes straight to heaven absolutely dishonors Jesus? Because it's saying you don't really need Jesus in order to go to heaven, because when you die, up you go. But no, no, in death, we are completely dependent on Jesus. Because if not for Jesus, there'd be no resurrection. If not for Jesus, we'd just stay in the grave forever. Thank God Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Thank God the grave could not hold him. Thank God that that Easter Sunday morning, Jesus came out of Joseph's new tomb and he ascended to heaven. Oh, thank God for that. He's the resurrection and the life. He makes the difference for you and for me. He makes the difference. Death need not be an enemy in as much as it's not the end. There is hope. There is life after life. In the Bible, we read another really fascinating passage. And I want to ask you this question before we read it together. Question is this. When you get to heaven, and you'll like that I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt. When you get to heaven... Who are some people that you expect to see in heaven? Come on now, help me out. Moses, I expect to see him too. Who else? Daniel, John the Baptist, who else? John Bradshaw, that's kind of you. Amen. All right, I'll take that. Anybody else? Do you expect to... Thank you, those are good suggestions. Do you expect to see King David when you get to heaven? Now, we know that David had his moments while he was on the earth. 
but God forgave him because he was repentant. So we expect to see David in heaven, yes or no? Yes, we do. King David, called way back then a man after God's own heart. Now let me show you something. This is the Bible record. This is Peter preaching at Pentecost, Acts 2, verse 29. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us to this day. Five verses later, Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, said, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, and so forth. Isn't that something? David isn't in heaven. And yet when you get to heaven, you are expecting to see him there. And I am too. He's not in heaven because he is what? He's asleep. He's in the same place as Stephen Hawking and Bob Hawke. They are asleep tonight. And they are going to sleep until the resurrection takes place. And that's clear. The word of the Lord says the dead Praise not the Lord. I'm one jumping in front, and I don't know how that happened. So I'll just tell you, Psalm 115 verse 17 says, The dead praise not the Lord. I'm sorry to whack away at this, but I'm going to. I go to so many funerals, man, and you get to the funeral, and the, and the funeral of celebrant, the officiant, the pastor or the priest says, Oh, while we are sad here tonight that dad is gone, we can be happy that dad is in the presence of Jesus, and he's praising God. You'll hear that. And the more charismatic the church, the more praising of God they're doing. They're really praising God. They're having a great big celebration. God was waiting for him, welcoming him at the gates. And he's praising the Lord in heaven right now. Except the Bible says they're not. The dead do not praise the Lord. I'll finish the verse. Neither any who go down into silence. It's silent in the grave. That's why dead people are dead. It's a funny old thing. Now, when I, when I was, where I was raised, and I don't know how it is in Australia, you have to tell me. When I was raised, a person died, they took him off to the funeral home, and then there was a funeral in the church two, three days later, and then you took him to the cemetery and buried him. Now, now where I live, person dies, and then and the big old thing at the funeral home, and there's a viewing, and you go by, and you pay your respects. Is that the Australian way? You're not sure? Some say yes, some say no. But it's the American way, there's money in it. It's the American way. Person dies, it's a very expensive thing to do, and then you go to the funeral home, and you file by. You know what's so interesting? And I I'm sorry, I don't mean any disrespect, but this is really interesting. You file by the casket, and you know what everybody says? Oh, he looks so good. <laughs> no, he doesn't, he looks really dead. He looks dead. He looked good a week ago when he said, hey, how you doing? That was good. That's not good, man. He looks dead. Oh, he looks so good. Oh, she looks lovely. Okay, have it your way. I preferred her when she was alive. The dead praise not the Lord. And you can go to the funeral home, and I wouldn't recommend you try this, but you could shout in the ear of the dead, and they're not going to respond. You blow up a bomb next to them, they're not going to respond. And yet we want to believe that while the dead are dead, just stone cold dead, there's another part of them somewhere over here singing and praising the Lord and doing happy things. 
come on, man. That just doesn't even make sense. And it's certainly not biblical. And everybody has asked that question at some time. So, oh, I had a, oh, some dear lady, she was about 80 years of age, and she said, I'm just absolutely beside myself. My husband died five years ago, and I know he's out there, and I just don't know why he won't talk to me. And so she's just in agony. She's really angry with him, angry with God. Why won't he communicate with me? I know he's out there. Lady, he's sleeping. That's why he's not communicating with you. He's dead. He's in no fit state to communicate with you right now. Things have never been worse for him, as a matter of fact. And because she was told something by a preacher that's not true, she's expecting her beloved husband to text her or somehow get a message to her. And that's too bad. He's asleep. That lady's husband and Stephen Hawking and Bob Hawke. Now, when Jesus had said these things, he cried with a loud voice back to the funeral, not the funeral, the, the, the grave of Lazarus. He said, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin. Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. He didn't say to Lazarus, come down from heaven. Didn't do that. He didn't say, Lazarus, come up from hell he didn't do that Lazarus if Lazarus had been in heaven he would have come out of the grave and said wow you should see what I've seen and he would probably say something like what am I doing back here this doesn't seem fair I was perfectly happy where I was but what happened with Lazarus is going to be replayed millions and millions of times over when Jesus returns it's really good news. The dead in Christ shall rise. People that you have known and loved will live again. Disease eats away at somebody's body. Ultimately, they succumb to death. We lay them in the grave or perhaps they're cremated. Ah, that's not the end. Jesus will triumph over the grave. Jesus will triumph over disease. That person will be remade with an absolutely brand new body that will never be subject to sickness or disease or corruption ever again. You see, your parents or your grandparents parents or your children or your grandchildren they will rise because Jesus is the resurrection and the life in Psalm 17 this is King David for you David said I shall be satisfied when I tell me when I awake because he was asleep you know with thy likeness Daniel said in Daniel 12 verse 2 and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall tell me awake Heart disease takes the life of someone you love or diabetes or cancer or a stroke. We're getting those folks back one day. Today they sleep, but soon they rise because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Keep your eyes open when you read the Bible. You will see this again and again and again. And you'll say, finally, the pieces fit together and I can figure out what the image is. This just makes sense. No one's in heaven watching down on their loved ones. Can you imagine some kindly man dies and goes to heaven and he watches over as his elderly wife suffers Alzheimer's and, and loses her faculties and dies some pitiable death. And suddenly heaven turns into hell. Some kind man in heaven looks down and he sees his son get involved with the wrong crowd. He's running drug deals. He gets shot to death on a street corner and left to bleed out. And the dad is in heaven saying, oh, it's so nice here in heaven. And he's watching his son going through hell. Oh, no, 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 no. You just turned heaven into the worst place that there ever was. It would be miserable for people in heaven to look down on what we're going through here. No, they don't. They live on the earth, die 
sleep the sleep of death. And then when Jesus comes back, they'll wake up and they'll never die again. The word of God says, the living know that they will die. Read this with me. But the dead know nothing. How much do the dead know? Nothing. They're not conscious. They're not thinking. They're not cognizant. They're not figuring stuff out. They're not cogitating. They are sleeping the sleep of death. But the devil is a liar. And the father of it, Jesus says, and I will tell you one of his most successful lies, has been spiritualism. Oh, and it's easy to make that cool. You know, they get these movies and the guy, the guy's wife dies. And then he hears a bump in the night. And then, and then he sees her and she's on the other side. And she comes to tell him it's okay. And you're going, oh, and you wipe away a tear. And you want to believe that. The Bible didn't invent the idea of the dead revisiting the living. Hollywood and the devil and all of that kind of stuff. That's who invented those ideas. Spiritualism is a very, very popular and successful deception of the devil. And so you go see a spiritualist and the person says, yes, uh, your mother is wanting to tell you this and your departed spouse is wanting you to know this. No, 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 they're not. Your mother is dead, sleeping in a grave. The spouse is resting, not sending you messages from the other side. But I tell you this spiritualism thing is successful. It is popular. King Saul even succumbed to it. He went to see a medium who was communicating with evil spirits. That lady was a witch, and that's all it is today. Psychics aren't putting you in touch with the dead. They are either lying to you, or they are communicating with demons. It's one or the other. And then people say, ah, but what about near-death experiences? Because I have a friend who was on the operating table and suddenly saw a light and was drawn towards the light. Now, two things. One, I can't explain to you everything that goes on inside somebody's mind when they're on an operating table or something else. My father died that same night. My sister had a dream when my father was saying to her, why don't you come over to where I am? Now, does that mean that my father was alive and not dead? No, it means that my sister probably ate too much pizza before she went to bed and had a dream that it was just a dream. And you don't say, well, she dreamed this, so let's throw out the Bible. You want to stay consistent with the Bible. And so you hear these stories of people who have these experiences and they're, 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 they're float up outside their body and they look down. And they see things happening. They're on the operating table and they, they, they look down and, and there's the doctor and the nurses and all this stuff. And somebody said, I followed the ambulance about 20 miles, taking my body to the hospital. I, followed, I was above the ambulance following it just like that. And you say, how can that be? How can that be? I'll tell you how that can be. The brain is a crazy thing. I met a lady, and I should tell you her name, if her name, Maureen. Maureen? Well, call, yes, it was Maureen. And Maureen said, no, no, John, I know that I have a soul that leaves my body. How do you know that, Maureen? She said, one day some friends and I were using cocaine. <laughs> Tell me what happened next, Maureen. I took a lot of coke and I passed out. And my friends feared I was dead, so they, so they dragged me over and put my body underneath a hedge. <laughs> I said, well, you got great friends there, Maureen. Nice. She said, I knew what happened because I came up out of my body and I looked down and I saw everything that was going on. I said, Maureen, it doesn't prove that you have a soul. It just proves you used way too much cocaine. That's all it proves. Nothing more than that. Have a look at this. This was in the Washington Post newspaper quite a number of years ago. A new study suggests these out-of-body and near-death experiences may be influenced by a portion of the brain misfiring under stress. That's what it is. There's a little processing center in your brain. It's called the angular gyrus. 
and it deals with sensory perception and how we perceive ourselves. And when this little thing misfires, all kinds of things happen. That's why when you took too much medication, you saw yellow unicorns with pink gumboots on, break dancing. You said, oh, what's that? It was the drugs. It's what your brain's capable of doing. The, the brain can do this under the right or the wrong circumstances. Now, I'll give you an, a, another thing to consider about this. Who are the people who experience these out-of-body experiences? People on their deathbed or people being operated on, people being pumped full of drugs, uh, people using drugs, uh, sometimes test pilots and centrifuges when they spin them around under great G-forces, they're like, what's going on? You never heard of anybody who went to Bali and sat on one of those long reclining chairs with a drink with an umbrella in it and four different colors and said, what a beautiful, and now they float up outside of their body. They were relaxing, chilling out, and they float up out of their body. It's always somebody who's under great stress. It's your brain misfiring. It's a pretty simple solution. It's not your soul leaving the body. It can't be. Because the Bible says a soul is not what you have. A soul is what you are. It is what you are. That is absolutely right. The dead don't go home after they die. They don't haunt houses. Now, there may be something scratching around in the attic of your house. It's not your grandfather. I mean, if it is, you, you need to, like, have him come down out of there. It's probably a possum or something like that. It's not the dead that have come back. Now, the devil, of course, deceives. He does. Causes people to see things and hear things. There's no question about that. But it's really important to know what the Bible says because we consider what it says in the book of Revelation, the book that speaks to earth's last days. And it says this in Revelation chapter 16. I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. It says, for they are the spirits of demons performing signs, the King James says, working miracles, which go out to the kings of the earth and to the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Down in the close of time, the devil will use spiritualistic manifestations and you know that if somebody walked on stage at the Academy Awards, if Elvis walked on stage at the Academy Awards and said, you know, I'm back. If Johnny Cash showed up, I'm back. If Michael Jackson turned up, I'm back, everyone. The world would say, wow, and precious few people would question it, because why should they? Because that's what they believe actually happens. And so when the devil uses demonic apparitions and miraculous signs in the end of time and he plays up spiritualism, you cannot afford to be fooled. You cannot afford to be fooled. I was in Bosnia, Bosnia and Herzegovina, um, two years ago. And I was interested to stop at Medjugorje. Now be careful, I, I, I mention this not unkindly. Years ago in Medjugorje, some young children received what they believed were visitations from the Virgin Mary. And one of them ever since, and it's been 30 or 40 years, has been receiving regular apparitions from the Virgin Mary. This happened at Garabandel in Conyers, Georgia, Knock in Ireland, and numerous other places. Except, of course, the Bible says it cannot possibly have happened because the dead know nothing. The dead are... 
And that would include Mary. She sleeps. She wasn't assumed to heaven on August the 15th. That didn't happen. And she's not in heaven interceding for people. That doesn't take place. And she's not coming back to the earth visiting people now. This is the devil preparing people for earth's last great deception. Because if you believe that the dead come back and visit, you have just opened up your life to the greatest deceptions that you could even imagine. And so you want to close that door. I'm not telling you it will happen to you. But I'm certainly saying that not all spirits are from God. And we've learned tonight how we can tell a lot of the false ones from the truth. So here's what we know. The dead are not alive. The dead are asleep. The dead are waiting for the resurrection. Now, you know that story, the emperor's new clothes? It's a funny story. It's a fairy story or a fable, you know. Um, the emperor was getting ready for a parade down the main street, and some enterprising tailors pulled the king in, and they said, King, look at these clothes. Of course, they were holding nothing, but they appealed to the king's vanity and said, The only people who can see them are very smart. If you can't see them, it's because you're very dumb. And the king said, Oh, I see them. They're fantastic. And so when the big day came, he climbed out of his clothes and standing there, oh natural, he put on these invisible clothes. And then he made the big parade down Main Street, pleased and proud and happy and on display. And people said, oh, what's that the king is wearing? And someone said, I'm not sure, but it needs to be ironed, whatever it is. <laughs> and everybody just admired the king. Oh, your majesty, Nice. Until a little boy stepped forward and said, wait up, the king's not wearing any clothes. And that's what I've done tonight. I know that people say the dead go to heaven and go to hell and go to purgatory and go home and go to Medjugorje and other, other places. It's just not true. It's just not true. It's a deception designed to cause you to be lost in the last days of earth's history. Designed to upend your understanding of God. Designed to confuse you. Someone needs to stand up and go, no, 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 the king is naked. Those aren't clothes he's wearing. And this thing about the dead living after they die, it's just like the emperor's new clothes, and that's too bad. And so somebody said, ah, but, 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 the Bible says that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Have you ever heard that? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. If that's what the Bible said, then that's what it says. But it doesn't say that. And I don't mean it says it, but it doesn't mean it. It just doesn't say it. The passage in question is 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 8. And Paul said, we are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. He did not say to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. He said, I would like one day to be absent from this body and present with the Lord. But Paul made clear when he'd be present with the Lord. Let me show you. Oh, look, this was written to the, to the who? To the Corinthians and writing to the Corinthians. Paul says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible. And we shall be what? And when is it going to happen? In a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the... Has the last trumpet been sounded yet? 
No. So this can't happen until Jesus returns. When Paul says, I like to be absent from this body and present with the Lord, he was looking forward to the return of Jesus, not what was going to happen 10, 15, 20, 25 years from then. This goes along with what Paul wrote, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him all those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who are asleep. The Thessalonians believed that if you died, you weren't going to go to heaven. And so you needed to be alive when Jesus came back. And Paul said, no, 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 no. The living won't go ahead of those who are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a... The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a... With a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first and then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so shall we ever be with the Lord therefore comfort one another with these words no no those words don't take away your pain but they provide you with comfort we will be together again I will see my dad again you will see grandma again Maybe a child. Oh, I hope not. But if you lost a child, you can look forward to the resurrection. Now they sleep. Where's Stephen Hawking? Stephen Hawking is with Elvis. And he's with George Washington. And he's with Bob Hawke. And they're with millions and millions and millions of others sleeping awaiting the resurrection of Jesus, waiting for that time. They sleep. Their soul didn't go any place because a soul is not what they had. A soul is what they are, you understand. That's the teaching of the Bible. And when you try to wrestle your way through this, you are not arguing Bible with Bible. You are looking, oh, the Bible says this, but the pastor said this. Bible said this, but a book said this. Bible said this, but my brother believes this. If you will stand with the word of God, and that's the only way you're going to be able to stand in earth's last days. Jesus said to the devil, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's what he said. Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And that's what we want because Jesus lived for us and Jesus died for us. And Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And we say, thank God for that. Except the story can't end. There's something else I need to talk to you about. And I'm sorry to do this, but if I don't, someone's going to come to me at the door and say, but John, you forgot about the thief on the cross. Ah, the thief on the cross. You didn't think I'd forget about the thief on the cross, did you? You know what happened? Jesus was crucified between two thieves. One was a scoundrel. Well, they were both scoundrels, but one was a repentant scoundrel. And the repentant scoundrel said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you, what? Today you will be with me in paradise. Oh, what about that, John? How much sleeping did the thief do? You think I didn't think this through? I came ready for your question. Now notice this. It's Sunday morning. Jesus and the thieves were on the cross on Friday afternoon. Sunday morning, they come down to the tomb, Mary does, and Jesus appears to her and he says, do not cling to me for I have, I have, I have what? Not yet ascended to my father, which is in heaven. I haven't gone yet. So Friday, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Sunday, I haven't gone. Is there more? Yes, there is. What did the thief say? The thief said, he didn't say, hey, when, 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 you, when you get to heaven, can you like call me up there right away? He said, remember me when you 
come in your kingdom. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. We still pray for that. It hasn't happened yet. The thief was asking Jesus to remember him at the second coming. He was not asking him to remember him five minutes from now. Jesus said to the thief, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise, except that when the Bible was written, it was written without punctuation. The punctuation was added by the Bible translators. Most of the time, they got it right. But haven't you ever noticed that sometimes chapters start and end in kind of funky places? And sometimes it was a little, maybe a little imperfect. I'm not talking about the, the words, but the, the, the punctuation. There wasn't any punctuation for 1,300 years. That's 1,300 years after Jesus died. So when you move the comma, assuredly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. That makes it all work out okay. Assuredly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. No, 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 don't go accusing me of changing around the Bible. These were commas placed by well-meaning translators who most of the time got it right. There are some Bibles that will even have a note saying, uh, the comma really kind of ought to be over there. Not many, but some will say that. Jesus gave the thief some assurance while they were out there on that old rugged cross or those old rugged crosses. And this is the assurance that I want you to have tonight. You might say, in the big picture, what does it really matter? And I would, I would, I would, I would feel you if you said that to me. I could hear that. Except it does matter because what you believe about this implicates or impacts other beliefs, you see. It's going to impact what you believe about hell. We're going to talk about that on Monday night. You can't miss that. It's just, it's too important. It'll impact what you think about God. And you don't want to be a believer who says, oh, this doesn't make sense, man. And then in earth's last days when the devil pulls out all stops and seeks to deceive the world with spiritualistic miracles, the kind of miracles that will make you say, wow, what's that? If you don't then know what you believe, if you don't know what the Bible says, if you're not standing on the word of God, you're going to be just swept away, absolutely swept away. Jesus hung on a cross and he said to the thief, today, I tell you this, you will be with me in paradise. Jesus offers you that same assurance tonight. He's not saying, get back to me next week. He's not saying you've been too big a sinner. Jesus died on the cross to bear our sins so we would not have to, so we could live forever. He died for you. And when you reach out to Jesus and you take hold of that nail-scarred hand, Jesus says to you, I tell you today, you'll be with me in paradise. That's wonderful assurance. Jesus said, I tell you now. He says, you can leave this place tonight with absolute assurance that you will be with me, Jesus says, in paradise. You can put your head on your pillow tonight and know that you'll be with him in paradise. He's coming back soon. And he's coming back for every last one of us who's yielded our heart to him and said, Jesus, be my savior, be my Lord, be for me the resurrection and the life. And I want you to be thinking, Jesus, you are the resurrection and the life. Say to him, Jesus, I want you to be the resurrection and the life for me. Be blessed tonight. And remember that Jesus tells you now, you can know by faith that you will be with him in paradise.